This is Iron Sports. We're so fortunate to have Michael McCambridge, a phenomenal author. You can read him in all these magazines and newspapers and have an amazing book on Chuck Knoll and on the NFL. Uh, he has a new book out called The Big Time, How the 1970s Transformed Sports in America. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on Iron Sports. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, your book brings back now. I, I'm sort of re- don't remember the early 70s. I remember the last five years more than I do the first five. But you talk about how the 70s just transformed what sports we see today is. And nothing could be more important than you talk about the, the use of television and, and how that has changed it. The fact that between Monday through Friday, you know, you would never have any sports. It would end on Sunday. So we would not be like watching sports all this week and have to wait till the following week to watch sports. Exactly. I think that that was one of the, the most obvious changes when I looked at, at the differences between, I do remember the first half of the 70s, and the first half of the 70s at the beginning of that decade, sports was just so much on the margins. You know, it, it only came out at certain times, and you could walk down a, a street in a city in America and not have any evidence, not have any sense of it being in the air. And to your point, yes. I think Monday night football was hugely influential because even as successful as the NFL had been throughout the sixties, when the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle pitched the networks on this Monday night package of games in prime time, CBS turned him down. NBC turned him down. And it was the number three network ABC that finally almost reluctantly um, took that chance. And it worked out for the best because of course, ABC had the, the soon-to-be legendary producer, Rune Arledge, who was convinced that he could revolutionize the way sports were shown on TV and then went about to do it. I mean, it's, it, it's striking if you, if you go on YouTube and watch telecasts of sports events from the late 60s, just how static it is, just how you know, you're pointing a camera at a field and then saying, Leroy Kelly off tackle for three yards. And what, what Arledge did with Monday Night Football so supremely well was he focused on the conflict, the drama, the personalities, the narrative arc of a game, the significance and context, contextualization of that game within the serial drama of a season. And then you've got the personalities in the booth, Howard Cosell, Dandy Don, a year later, Frank Gifford. And all of that made sports more compelling, more interesting to the casual viewer, which you had to do because going to prime time, you were facing the broadest audience in American culture, and it was majority female. And so if you had gotten the same ratings that you got on Sunday afternoon on Monday night, the program would have been canceled after a year. But um, I think the genius of Arledge and Monday Night Football was it underscored the dramatic aspects of sports and made it a bigger tent that more people could could come into and appreciate. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, uh, even I had Larry Zonka on the show a few weeks ago, and he mentioned in his book about how when they first played, they played one of the first Monday Night Football games and how big that was and that was because the games were in color and all these other things yeah. about that. Just it, and then, And you write in your book how all the NFL players would sit and watch the game. It's the one game yeah. they could watch because there was no, there was no Sunday night football. There was no Thursday. There was no, it was it. It was right. the only game that they was could it. <laughs> Exactly. Joe Green said he, he never missed a Monday night game. Wherever <laughs> he was, off day, he was, he was going to make sure he saw the game.
And one of the other big changes from this in the 70s is you talk about how athletes, and we look at this now as insane when we think about the money in sports and what these athletes are making, but the fact that there was Chiefs that worked on, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs that worked on you know, the assembly line. It's like Travis Kelsey would go from playing football <laughs> on Sunday to go work on the assembly line Monday through Friday. The NBA players, star players that were in the Hall of Fame were bank tellers in off-seasons. People were selling things in, in, in stores and salesmen. They, this, you, it, the 70s made sports, initially the big team sports, a full-time job and also something where people, your athletes can make millions and millions of dollars. From. Yeah, and I, you know, I was struck by, um, there's a quote in there from Gordie Howe um, after he'd signed a big contract with the World Hockey Association, which was the rival league that challenged the NHL for a few years. And Howe was in his 40s by the time he signed the deal. But, but he made the point that when he was the star player on the Red Wings, and he was winning MVPs, and they were winning Stanley Cups in the 60s, he still had to work an off-season job. And his next-door neighbor who worked in business had a boat, and they had a you know lake house <laughs> on the weekends, and Gordy's watching him drive off. Meanwhile, he can't buy a drink in town because he's the superstar, but he's still making these you know relatively piddling wages. And so the, the, the notion that the 70s was also the dawn of the emancipation of the athlete and athletes getting paid like entertainers, which is in a real sense what they are, um, that, that was also an important piece. Right. And you, you go through the fact that the reserve clause, it used to be that you signed with the team and that you're going to be playing for the team the rest of your life. And Kurt Flood and, and some of these players that, that pushed that and were able to make court challenges with it. And also the fact that there were rival leagues that were able, like the ABA, threw money out of players like so Kareem got the $1.4 million contract. And all those things uh, pushed the sports in terms of the athletes making more money. Yes. And then, but you still had to have the, the decision by the Major League Baseball arbiter Peter Seitz, um, that freed Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally um, late in 1975 and ushered in the era of free agency. You know, it was it was years before there was free agency in the NBA, and it was more than a decade before there was free agency in the NFL. But that decision was was seismic, and I think that you can make a case that after that decision free agency was inevitable. It was going to come sooner or later, one way or the other. And, and we've seen that today. And, you know, people, uh, of course, complain today. Is this person worth 40 million? Is that person worth 30 million? And the answer is the same as it's always been, which is, you know, should the athlete with, with his or her short career get that money? Or do you want it to go to the owner? Well, I think most people want it to go to the athletes. <laughs> And then you talked about athletes being entertainers, and that's the one thing you focus in the book a lot too, is the fact that that some of the, that suddenly O.J. Simpson and and even when I, we we talked about Zonka and Kick, who after they won, you know, they brought every commercial we said imaginable, and Jack Nicklaus yep. started doing commercials, and the fact that these athletes are more than just the players, and athletes had been in endorsers before in the fifties and sixties, but then in the seventies, especially with the African American athlete, with uh, including O.J. Simpson, was able then to take huge advantage because they became super popular all across America. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, obviously O.J. Simpson is a complicated case um, for for the obvious reasons of um, it seems that he's a murderer. Um, and so you, you have to look back on that, um, I think, in a little bit different light. At the same time, O.J. and Jack Nicholas and Joe Green with the Coke commercial later in the decade, um, those were signs of 
the changing profile of the American athlete. Uh, because as you say, there, there were athletes doing ads in the 50s and 60s, but mostly it was for niche, you know, Vitalis hair care products or Janssen shirts or something like this. Now suddenly you have an athlete, an African-American athlete, as the sort of star of this major nationwide television campaign um, for a rental car company. And you have Jack Nicholas all over Sports Illustrated doing ads for everything from cars to golf clubs to sport clothes. Um, and, and that was a sign. Uh, and, and this is certainly Monday Night Football was part of this, of moving sports into a more central role in American culture. And you mentioned, I mean, there's so many side things. This book is great. It's called The Big Time. And you know, small little points of the book about Nicholas, I know we're down here in Florida where golf is huge, is that when he was heavy, if you looked at the younger Jack Nicholas, was very, very heavy. But when he, after the concession, the, the famous thing with the concession of the Ryder Cup, which we just talked, you know, you heard about the concession and those things with Tony right. Jacklin, that he decided he was, not just saying he could say, he conceded because he, didn't want to, he was tired and he just, he needed to lose weight. And when he lost weight, then he realized it became more marketable. And that's a nice little side story that you brought up in the book. And it speaks to the importance of image in our culture because uh, obviously Nicholas had struggled with being the antagonist of Arnold Palmer and resented and sometimes booed by the, by the galleries in the 60s. He's the same person, same excellent golfer, but suddenly he emerges newly svelte and with longer hair and he gets rid of the, you know, the awful bucket hats that he was wearing at times in the 60s. And suddenly he's the golden bear and the galleries get bigger and he becomes a crowd favorite. Same person. Um, so, yeah, that was that was uh, that was a dramatic change. And um, and it was I thought Nicholas is the perfect example to show it. And just the sports, we talked about sports and entertainment. It was the mix of sports being these events and the fact that you highlighted a, a bunch of them in the book, but, you know, the 70 and 71, the fight of the century, Ollie Frazier, Madison Square Garden with all the celebrities and everybody who was anybody there. And then the King, Bob, the uh, uh, Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs tennis match, a tennis match. Can you imagine that all the celebrities? So we're focused now on the Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift and how that like, isn't it great. But, but again, those, that, that idea of entertainment and the mix between entertainment and sports started in this in the seven and i think i think it's important to emphasize that those things weren't just about entertainment either um both of the examples you mentioned the first ali frazier fight and the battle of the sexes between billy jean king and bobby riggs who you were rooting for in those matches said something about the way you saw the world what you thought about equality of the sexes what you thought about the war in vietnam those were instances where these sports events were sort of the, you know, kind of a Spanish civil war for the larger struggle going on in the society as a whole. And um, I think they're more fascinating because of that. Yeah, you mentioned in the book how Ollie came into the fight as someone who was not liked at all. Frazier was the more popular fighter. And even though Frazier won the fight in, in one of the greatest events, sports events in the history of all time, but after it, how Ollie was able to be humble enough to say I lost, but also how he handled it, he became more popular in a loss. And, and certainly how Billie Jean King handled that whole match against Bobby Riggs, had, you know, her popularity skyrocketed after that match. Yeah, and I think the other thing with Ali was obviously then we are however many years into the folly of Vietnam, and it turns out that this, you know, loudmouth African-American boxer that a lot of middle-class whites resented 
And it turns out he was right. And um, and then you started. I can remember talking to the the broadcaster Bob Costas, who said that even as Ali was a controversial figure, he was very popular on college campuses. And Costas remembered going to a uh, closed circuit broadcast when he was a student at Syracuse to watch the fight and just how wildly popular Ali was in that arena because by then the tide was even then starting to turn. And then you mentioned about, you just mentioned about colleges and in your section of the book about the, in terms of the seventies, the African-American emergence in terms of, and and they've already, the pro sports were integrated, uh, but colleges were not. And you've mentioned, you gave this whole story about the 70 national championship game between Texas and Notre Dame and how they played and what a great game it was and everything. At the end, you said, no, there's not one African-American player on either team. And the fact that Grambling would send more players to the NFL than any of these top teams. And it's just the integration in the 70s. And also I learned about Nebraska and Oklahoma won those titles because they integrated quicker, and that's why they became so dominant in terms of it. Uh, but just that whole idea about how college football, and especially college football, which is one of the dominant sports, changed in the 70s. Yeah, now just to clarify one point, the Texas team that won that national title on New Year's Day 1970, they were all white. There were some African-American players on the Notre Dame team they played. But indeed, Grambling had more players taken in the draft than than Texas and Notre Dame combined. And, you know, you also get this was the stark thing when I go back and and started researching the decade. You get the stark juxtaposition of New Year's Day, 1970, the last all white national champions in college football. Ten days later, Super Bowl four, the Chiefs, the first team in the history of pro football with a majority of starters who were African-American beat the Vikings in the Super Bowl, and we go from seeing, you know, the past, the last gasp of the segregated past, to 10 days later getting this glimpse of, of the integrated future. And that was a story that played out throughout the, the course of the decade as well. And I'm a Pirates fan, and I noticed in your book that it's like when the Pirates had an all-African-American lineup, it was almost by accident when one player went out, yeah. and one of the players looked at the others, and this is the first time that it's happened. They didn't know at the time that was the first, but, but that was actually the Pirates were the first one to have an all-African-American lineup on the field at one time. And certainly, I, I write about at the end of the book, the, the 79 Pirates team, the We Are Family Pirates, was just this wonderful cultural stew of black and white and Hispanic and, and so open and freewheeling and, and Willie Stargell, the pops as sort of the, the spiritual leader of the team. And that was an example of what integration could accomplish. People from different backgrounds, different races, different nationalities, finding common ground and common cause. And that was, you know, an example of sports at its best. And in that way, I think you could make a case that um, sports was a leader for the society because a lot of, you know, sports integrated before a lot of business, a lot of businesses, a lot of faculties, a lot of different walks of life um, integrated much later than sports did. Yeah, I had Dave Parker on my show, and he talked about the 79 team, and that was uh, what a tremendous uh, (laughs) collection of talent and personalities on that team. And then the other major change, there's so many, this book is so phenomenal, but the major change was clearly in women's sports. And you mentioned the Billie Jean King match, which was one thing, but also Title IX and the fact that you gave up statistics like in the 60s, there was no women's basketball. There was six-on-six basketball. At the Olympics, the longest race that a woman ran was 800 meters. And now what we look to see have now. So, Yeah, it, it's, 
I think of all the changes in the 70s, the one that has largely resonated for the for the longest period of time, the one that feels, I think, the most important today is the unprecedented, unimagined number of women who got involved with sports, not just as athletes, but as coaches, administrators, spectators, writers. Um, the statistic I cite in my book that still is, is remarkable when I think about it, at the beginning of the 70s, in American high schools, only one out of every 27 girls were involved in an organized sports team or athletics. Within a generation of Title IX, which passed in 72, the number had grown to one in three. Today, today it is two in five. And we see things like, you know, that, that Women's World Cup this summer, which had such incredible interest even as the matches were starting at ridiculous o'clock, you know, the middle of the night, um, how many thousands of people show up at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln to watch a Nebraska volleyball game, then Coco Goff winning the U.S. Open and, um, and getting a higher rating for the women's singles final than the men's singles final got. Caitlin Clark obviously becoming the sensation of March Madness. And we are, we are in this maturation point for women's sports. And the case I make is that what happened in the 70s, not just Billie Jean, not just Title IX, but also the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the governance organization that handled women's sports in college when the NCAA wouldn't bother with it, and in fact was fighting Title IX, those factors created the infrastructure that we see growing today in women's sports, and hugely important in um, changing not just sports, but society as a whole. Yeah, I mean, when you look at those pictures at Nebraska, if anyone has not seen that, the volleyball match in the middle of a Husker Stadium, drawing, yeah. was it 100,000 people? Not, yeah. I don't, it was 80,000 people, I think. And then Caitlin Clark, yeah. and Caitlin Clark playing in, in front of tens of thousands of people at, outside at Hawkeye Stadium in Iowa. Uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing to think that that happened. But, uh, and it just happened this past year. So pretty tremendous. Yeah. So, but anyway, your book, this is, we've been talking to Michael McCambridge, author of the big time uh, discussion about the seventies. So even if you're, we're, uh, if you live through the seventies, it's great to bring uh, memories. And if you're trying, if you're someone who's just interested in sports and interested about hearing about these athletes that formed and you, and we didn't even discuss about some of these great basketball players. You talk about Kareem and Dr. I should actually mention about Kareem and Dr. J in terms of what their impact was on sports. Yeah, well, I think I think there's a case to be made that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the most misunderstood superstar athlete in the 70s, and he was was somebody whose talent spanned the decade, um, and he was crucially important. And yet, Dr. J stands out to me as the last truly mythic figure in American sports. I grew up in Kansas City, and in like 1975 or 76 on the playgrounds in Kansas city. If you asked 10 kids who their favorite basketball player was probably seven or eight of them would have said Julius Irving, Dr. J. And what was so amazing about that was none of us had seen him play because he was in the ABA still. They didn't have a national TV contract. You'd just hear stories and you'd see these pictures and you'd hear these urban myths of he dunked from the free throw line and he dunked over artist Gilmore and, he can do anything and jump and touch the top of the backboard. He was this terrific 
idealized figure, but that we just never saw him play because television was was the avenue and the ABA, um, to its detriment, never got that national TV contract. And I can't tell you the number of people I spoke to who had seen him in the ABA who said as great as Dr. J was when he got to the 76ers, he was never as good as he was when he was playing with the Nets in the ABA. Well, Michael, thank you so much for talking, uh, coming on. I urge everyone to, you know, people be traveling this time for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, you're stuck in airports. This is a great book to read, The Big Time by Michael McCambridge. Thank you so much for coming on I Run Sports. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it.